This week on the show, we have GhostBSD 22.0.1 and cover what's new there. Packet scheduling with DummyNet and FreeBSD, tutorial by Clara Systems. Inside zone installation and why the FreeBSD desktop and the Linux rant. We talk a little bit about that, some pros and cons. How to install GNOME on OpenBSD, tutorial. The important idea of the virtual file system switch, VFS, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 440, BSD Inside Zone, recorded on the 26th of January 2022. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow for the online backup for the truly paranoids. And if you want to support this show or don't like uh, to see ads here, then check out our Patreon page for the offerings there. It's patreon.com slash bsdnow. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome to another episode. We are ramping up our BSD content here. And as always, we have great headlines for you this week. Uh, starting off with GhostBSD 22.01 is out and available for everyone. So I guess we don't need to answer the question anymore. What is GhostBSD? Uh, basically, but... it's a, a FreeBSD <laughs> desktop distro uh, based around, is it GNOME or Mate? Uh, looks like, oh, could be Mate, right? I forget. But it's basically a GNOME <laughs> desktop uh, and it's quite a nice distro. And uh, I know quite a few people that like it. And it has all the instructions on how to download it and start using it. Also, check out, they have a, uh, a monthly meetup now. Uh, when we're recording oh. this, their one was just last week. But I think it'll be something like the third Friday in February or something like that. And it's usually uh, later in the evening. Like, I think that's 7 p.m. Eastern, uh, which... Uh, makes it probably a bit late for people in Europe, but it's late enough that people on the West Coast of uh, uh, North America will be able to join. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so they have an events page on their website. And it's Mate because the screenshot says uh, GhostBSD release and then Mate. Or, or, yeah. <laughs> okay, now that we know that, what's new in that release? Uh, it says here that this new ISO contains fixes, improvements, and software updates. Finally, the installer hanging at the cleaning stage for ZFS installation got fixed, all right, and OpenRC and DHCPD were removed from the base code. Furthermore, automation configuration for the HD7000 series and all the GPUs has been added, and they also added the support for OS-release to show the GhostBSD name and GhostBSD version in the applications like, here we go, Mate System Monitor, Python distros, uh, PF, PFetch, PFH, <laughs> Fetch, uh, and NeoFetch, and added a new set of wallpapers for 2022, fresh ones. Okay. And removed P7zip from the default selection since it's vulnerable and unmaintained. Okay. Uh, yeah, and then they list uh, individual stuff, uh, like the epic uh, changes were the removal of related OpenRC code from base, uh, as well as contrib and services from libexec slash rc. And the DHCP, as we also mentioned uh, earlier, then they had some features added. Uh, they built VLC packages with UPnP options. Uh, they customized the ETCOS release so that you can really see that it's a GhostBSD release. They added also GhostBSD to the uname output and uh, the init GFX for the automatic configuration of the graphics hardware. 
Some bugs were fixed. Misspellings uh, of error messages. Installer hangs at cleaning is fixed. Uh, they added also code to see the if tree underscore i2 exists. And they fixed the create scheme with an empty disk. Two security uh, fixes were also applied. And they provide instructions how to download and install the new update. Very nice. Let's look at the next item uh, from Clara Systems. They keep writing nice articles and documentation. And this one is about package scheduling with DummyNet and FreeBSD. Yeah, this one is actually written by Tom. Uh, oh. So I don't know why we didn't make him explain it to everybody. But <laughs> that's what he's doing in his meantime when he's not recording. <laughs> but so, yeah, this one builds on a. So we had a previous article about DummyNet uh, last year. And this one builds on more less on using it to uh you know simulate weird networks and more on how to use it for traffic shaping uh, so you know dominant is a traffic shaper bandwidth manager and link emulator and traffic management is an important feature for any router that sits at a network bottleneck uh, bottlenecks are created when there is a difference between the link speed uh, or when multiple users are served using a single upstream connection so while maybe your network inside your house is all gigabit or even 10 gigabit but you know the connection out to the internet is probably not a gigabit. If it is a gigabit, good for you. But even then, you know you have five machines in your house all connected at a gigabit, trying to go out to the internet. That's only a gigabit. Uh, it means there will be a bottleneck there, and uh, sometimes you want different traffic shaping than what the default will do, since it the default is to balance based on flows, and you don't want you know one person who's making a lot of connections to dominate your internet connection. Oh, yes, yeah. One download uh, stops all the streamings. Yeah, things <laughs> like that. Uh, and so it shows a little model network of how you would set it up, and then it gets into how to actually measure the traffic, um, and then looking at the queuing. So creating a pipe that has a limited bandwidth of, say, 10 megabits per second and adds a delay of 10 milliseconds, and then saying all traffic that matches this rule will go through that pipe, and then when you start pinging, you see now instead of a ping normally taking, you know, 0.17 seconds, it now takes 11 seconds uh, because you've added that 10 uh, milliseconds, or sorry, 11 milliseconds, not 11 seconds. Uh, but you can see that the 10 millisecond delay you added to the pipe showing up in the ping. And then you can do iperf and see how that's limiting the bandwidth that's going through and how if, for example, you're using UDP and you try to send more than the bandwidth of the pipe, you'll see that that starts causing packet loss on the ping, where we saw you know 19% packet loss when trying to send uh, at a gigabit over a link that was only configured for a fraction of that. And then it talks about using uh, weighted fair queues uh, to instead of saying you know if if you have five machines and a gigabit connection, instead of just saying oh we'll give each of the five people 200 megabits. You want to be able to say, well, if nobody else is using theirs right now, I should be able to use the whole gigabit to download stuff. But if other people are using it, I should it should be fair. Uh, and so it shows how to implement that uh, and how to do different weights. And you can say, you know, uh, the video calls are very important and they can use as much bandwidth as they need. And, you know, you're downloading stuff or streaming movies. Maybe that's a bit lower weight than and so on, uh, and shows how to implement all of that. Hmm. Reminds me a bit about the arc, like being greedy and generous. 
And so, yeah, these are good examples, actually. Like doing these with iPerf first before implementing them in the real network, it's kind of like good to test first. Right, and also showing how uh, oversaturation causes the packet loss and, and showing that with the pings and so on. Mm -hmm. Anyway, uh, it's a great article, and it's definitely worth checking out. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think it's quite done yet, uh, but there's ongoing work to make dummy net uh, easier to use in PF. Uh, to do the same kind of traffic shaping. Uh, basically, ah, yes. uh, a lot of the configuration of DummyNet is moving out of the IPFW command into its own like DNCTL uh, for DummyNet control uh, that will allow you to configure DummyNet independent of IPFW so you don't have to use two firewalls in order to use PF for NAT and so on, but still have DummyNet for traffic shaping. Mm, okay, so it's common enough to uh, not be specific to... Well, uh, that's the, the work in progress. Okay, then we'll see maybe a part two by Tom when it's done. All right, let's look at our news roundup this week. We have the namesake for this episode, the Inside Zone installation. What's this about? This is the Inside Zone installation. How do zones actually get put together on Solaris and Ilomos? Uh, specifically, how does a zone get installed? So zones, if you're not familiar, they're similar to, or they're actually uh, they're like the same concept. They're like extension jails. jails. Yeah, yeah, uh, jails on steroids or the Solaris way. And here they write, there are various types of zones. The nomenclature here is a brand. A zone's brand defines how it gets installed and managed and its properties. Often, this is mapped zone map to a zone template, which is the default configuration for a zone of that type or brand. And I have it by the way. By the way, this overlap between template and brand can be seen in the create subcommand of a zone CFG. You do create-t sun wlx uh, to build a zone from a template, which is where the T comes from. It's not to create that sets the brands, it's the template. Mm -hmm. Okay. The templates are stored as XML files in ETC zones, as are the configured zones, which is a bit confusing. So in theory, if you wanted to generate a custom template to save adding so much as your zone config each time, you could add your own enhanced template here. The actual zone list is in ETC zone slash index. So in fact, Triplex, the author here in this blog, well, has yeah, a Triplex template. Triplex is zones. the distro created by the author. Oh, right. Yeah, that's <laughs> correct. Uh, uh, which are sparse root zones uh, built from a different image to the global zone. They're implemented by building an OS image that provides the file system to the mounted, to be mounted, read only, and a template XML file configured appropriately. And so one of the things in the template is the brand that maps to a directory under slash user lib brand. So for example, the trip sparse template in etc zones trip sparse xml sets the brand to be sparse root in addition to having the normal lofs mount for uh, user lib or sbin that you expect for a sparse root zone there's a directory user lib brand uh, slash sparse dash root that contains everything necessary to manage a sparse root zone in there you will find a couple more xml files platform xml and config xml a lot of what's in those uh, is internal to zones of the two, config XML is the more interesting one uh, because it has entries that match the zone ADM command or subcommands. And those uh, is the install entry for trip sparse. It is user lib brand sparse dash root slash package create dash lowercase z and then percent z and dash capital R and then percent R. 
So the explanation here is when you invoke zone ADM install, the script gets run and you get the zone name, which is the lowercase z, and zone path, the uppercase r, passed in automatically. So these are the placeholders, the percent %z and percent %r. There's not much else you can specify for a sparse root zone. If you look at install opts property in config XML, there's just an H, which means that the user can specify dash H and will get the help. Ah, okay. And so it talks about uh, setting up those zones and how you can uh, use those. Well, that's kind of a nice uh, way of templating these uh, zones. Yeah, and then the brands, uh, I think so, uh, Illumos, at least for a while, had support for Linux branded zones and so on, uh, similar to the Ubuntu zones that are, or Ubuntu jails that are uh, working fairly well now on FreeBSD. Yeah, so that's uh, kind of nice to see the the zones way or the, the way the uh, Solaris folks are doing it. Yeah, like, have done it. you know, if you're building something new, you probably wouldn't use XML files today. Uh, right, they're in kind general, of clunky. It does raise questions about, you know, can we fix up jails a little bit so that more of this is just part of the system and less of it is, you know, pick one of nine jail managers from the porch tree that all do it slightly differently. <laughs> oh, yes, and everyone is vying for being put into the handbook. <laughs> no, I think that was yeah. just that one guy. <laughs> anyway, okay. our next story is why the FreeBSD desktop in my Linux rant. This is over on Random NixFix uh, on WordPress. And I say, I've been a FreeBSD user for about four years now and a FreeBSD desktop user uh, since December of 2020. Previously, I used FreeBSD on my desktop on and off uh, somewhere around 2019. And have enjoyed it despite some of the creature comforts that it's lacking, which we'll talk about in, later in this article. Uh, as some background, I've been a Linux desktop user since 2013, starting with Ubuntu and then moving to Linux Mint, and played the whole distro hopping game uh, using every popular distro in most every desktop environment out there. I was never quite satisfied though, hence I distro hopped up more and more. Debian and Ubuntu were stable, but there was some package updates I wanted that I thought would be inconvenient to add, or I couldn't get the package and there was no PPA or whatever. So then I tried Fedora and then Arch Linux, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, they were more bleeding edge. And in less than a year, I was either far too unstable for me to the point of having, you know, unrecoverable systems sometimes, uh, or the desktop environment had so many bugs that I just couldn't use it. By that time, maybe a new LTS was out and I'd hop to that until the packages felt too old. And then I'd hop to uh, a rolling release and then back and forth and back and forth. Uh, I was coming at this as someone who's a power user, spends most of their time in a terminal, does sysadmin work, some DevOps, uh, some programming for fun, etc. Uh, so it, you, you know, if you aren't comfortable with a terminal, my opinions of easy and I like this may not align well with yours and you might not find them the same. Uh, if you consider yourself a power user who's comfortable with the ideas of using a terminal and digging into a system, here's some of my thoughts. So what they like, um, to begin, there's a bullet point list here of all the things I like about FreeBSD as a desktop. Uh, you have the stable base operating system, the option to get packages at a slower pace from the quarterly um, package build, or to get newer packages as they're available in ports or the, the latest package build. It has safe update and upgrade mechanisms. I think they're mentioning uh, boot environments in particular, so that if uh, a system or package upgrade goes sideways, you can roll it back easily. Uh, ZFS to manage disks, easy disk encryption, uh, being able to use a lag to 
merge uh, wired and wireless interface uh, so that you have seamless connectivity. Has no system D, has good documentation and man pages. Uh, they appreciate uh, the RC system for managing networks, networks and services, and it has uh, a really good sound system. What they don't like uh, about FreeBSD is some nice to have packages aren't available. Some of the desktop integrations for the OS are missing. Uh, while FreeBSD has hundreds of desktop managers in the ports tree, a lot of them are not as dialed in specifically for FreeBSD as you would see in, in a distro that's actually you know spending a lot of time improving the, the desktop experience. And so it might not you know have the volume stuff hooked up or the battery indicator might not be exactly right or you know it's just not hooked in integrated with FreeBSD because you know FreeBSD doesn't have one particular desktop environment that it likes. It has all the ones in the ports tree that you can customize however you like. Uh, and then they had some difficulties with USB audio. I'll be interested to see what difficulties in particular, because I've been using USB audio on my laptop that run that, that lives on my exercise bike. And uh, I've been happy with it, except for sometimes if I don't close Firefox before I put the laptop to sleep, it won't go to sleep. It'll say waiting for Firefox to release the audio device, even though uh i'm halfway to sleep now so i uh, there's no way to go back and close firefox or something yeah mm. uh, and it's like you know i think that was i don't know if that's still there like i haven't updated that laptop in a while so it it might already be fixed even uh so going back to what they like they talk in detail about what they like about the stable operating system um in particular the concept of having a separate base os from your packages and so on um and then talking about packages and you're having the quarterly packages and latest packages plus ports to customize them whatever way you want. Uh, I think another nice thing is for some stuff, there are multiple versions of an application. For example, you know, PHP, there's on Ubuntu and CentOS and so on, usually there's there's the one version that they support. Whereas in FreeBSD, generally all the versions are available and you just pick the one that you want. Although that can be slightly annoying when you want to use something off the default and need to change the, the default versions and so on. Uh, and then for the safe updates and upgrades, yeah, they talk about using BECTL uh, and being able to do all that. They talk about the advantages of ZFS and the built-in Gelly disk encryption and so on. They actually show their recipe for getting uh, link aggregation between their uh, built-in ethernet and their Wi-Fi uh, working, including how you have to uh, convince the wired NIC to use the MAC address of the Wi-Fi uh, adapter in order for it to all work. And they talk about what they don't like about systemd, saying, you know, this one is probably uh, the least struggle I've had for a desktop laptop computer, but there is one issue that I still had with systemd to this day, and this is it always disregards my split DNS configuration for my house. It used to be that I could modify a couple of configuration files and make, you know, resolve.conf would be populated with whatever name servers were set by a DHCP. Great, exactly what I wanted. Well, then systemd has its own resolver D uh, resolver, which seems to always want to use Google DNS. Not only uh, do I reduce what info I give Google, but as I said, it messes with my split DNS network configuration. In recent days, doing my old technique to stop using resolver D stopped working. And I tried every solution under the sun for Ubuntu 2004 and no dice. So my solution 
whenever I need to force my own DNS changes is to modify resolve.conf and my own configuration and make the file immutable uh, and then try to remember to change later when I leave the house and, and need it to work on Wi-Fi. <laughs> and that's very annoying. It's like, wouldn't it be nice to have an operating system that just did what you told it to do? And that's previous. Uh, wouldn't it be great? Yeah. Uh, and then they talk about uh, documentation, you know, saying I'd been a Linux user for eight years and a previous user for four. I work with Linux all day long. Even as the years go by, I'm certain that I can't know everything about how to manage my computer. And this is where good documentation is great. And, you know, things like the previous day handbooks save people's skin many times. Uh, and there's lots of other stuff. And they talk about man pages and so on. And then they come back to the BSDRC stuff and talk about, hey, look how in this six lines I've configured this advanced network configuration. And yeah, let's see what that looks like on trying to do that on Linux. You know, the favorite one for me is trying to create a link aggregation between two wired NICs and then put a VLAN on top of that. Uh, in yeah. FreeBSD, I could do that in like five lines of rc.com or, you know, three invocations of ifconfig. Um, and on Linux, it's just a nightmare. Yeah, takes more than that. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, there's the section about the uh, USB audio they were mentioning at the beginning. Yeah, so the missing software, I'm guessing they're talking about things uh, like the, what's that thing called? Uh, Chrome for as a desktop app that like Slack uh, yes. and, and all those things use. Um, uh, yeah, right. Electron. Electron, that's yes. the... Uh, and, uh, and some of that is, yeah, that's a problem. That's mostly Chrome's fault, but yeah. Uh, anyway, they talk more about that. And uh, also, I think they talk a little bit about trying to do gaming and so on like that. But then, yeah, the USB audio. Uh, so this one is tricky. Does FreeBSD's uh, Free USB audio work? Yes. In fact, it's been working great for years. Uh, they have... Uh, FIIO DAC, and I've had no problems listening to anything. But this one point of contention I have drives me absolutely bonkers and really does prevent me from having two computers on my desk. And that is, if I unplug my USB DAC for any reason, all hell breaks loose. Uh, up until uh, late last year, if I unplugged my DAC, I would have to hard reset or SSH into my desktop and kill the audio processes that are using my DAC because the entire USB bus would start to hang. Uh, with the latter, I basically had to reboot after there anyway because my desktop environment had some process killed somewhere and wouldn't start it back up properly and so on. Huh. Uh, today, I don't have to hard reboot or try to SSH in, but I do still have to find and kill processes and still probably log out and reboot anyway to get everything working again. I'm not sure exactly what they're running into, but it sounds like their problem is they're using, or well, the, not their problem, but the use case they have is they're using a KVM switch uh, and are trying to switch between two computers and have their USB audio device switch over to whichever computer is displaying on the monitor, which is uh. a perfectly valid use case. Uh, but I can see where they're running up to some problems. Yeah, the uh, the OSs need to know about which is the active one. Yeah, get the and notification. I guess their conclusion is, if you're someone who isn't afraid of command line and wants to try FreeBSD out for yourself, I really encourage you to do that. There's lots of ways to learn, lots of good resources. And once you start to learn the design of FreeBSD, it really starts to come together and make a lot of sense. Um, you could also try GhostBSD if you want an out-of-the-box already configured desktop experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think this is a well-balanced uh, review. And so 
it was good to reflect on that here. Okay, then next up we move to desktops on OpenBSD. In particular, we have an installation tutorial by Celine. Uh, how to install GNOME on OpenBSD. And she keeps writing, uh, that's good. So we look at her articles more often in the coming year. So uh, this article will explain how to install the GNOME desktop on OpenBSD. You need access to the root user to proceed, of course. As root, run package underscore add GNOME GNOME-extras, which will install the meta package GNOME, listing all the required dependencies to have a full working GNOME installation and the dash extras package containing all GNOME-related programs. You should see this output after package underscore add has finished installing the packages. It's important to read the package-readme files, which are specific instructions to packages. Uh, so there are two package-readmes, uh, one for GNOME and one for uPower. The most important file is the package-readme about GNOME. That contains uh, clear instructions how to configure or how the configuration requires to run GNOME. That file has a too long didn't read section at the end for people in a hurry, which contain instructions to copy and paste. Feel and like the too long didn't read should be at the top though. Because yeah, if you get to the bottom, bottom <laughs> you probably read it all. It's a bit late for that. I, I, I remember there's something we talked about uh, specifically for the FreeBSD handbook was starting some of those chapters or sections with, you know, if you're just Quick looking start. for the things to copy and paste and don't care how it works, Here's that. And then after is like, now we're going to explain why we do all these steps. Here's the pros. Yeah. 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 Those are helpful. And um, if you know what you're doing, you just need the commands to, yeah, you just copy it from there. Okay. Then she has a section on tweaks. There's an app named tweaks that allows uh, further customization that GNOME 3 is allowing, like virtual desktop being horizontal, add menus to the top panel or change various behavior of GNOME. So that also works on OpenBSD, very nice. And she concludes with, while the GNOME installer is not fully automated, it requires only a few instructions to get it installed and fully operational. And she provides two screenshots and those seem like decent OpenBSD desktops to use. Uh, well, <laughs> GNOME desktops on OpenBSD, of course. Yeah, cool, nice to know and have the instructions here. Then next we have Chris Seibenman is also uh, still busy in 2022 blogging about various things. And here we found the important Unix idea of the virtual file system switch. You know, I didn't actually know that VFS stood for virtual file system switch. I wouldn't have yeah, guessed always, the switch part. Yeah, the, the S would be I, part like, of file I just system. figured it was virtual file system and it was more that it was that abstraction layer that we're going to describe in a second. But it actually <laughs> makes a little more sense that it's virtual file system switch, except for because in every other fs like ufs and zfs the f the file system is two words not one word it's file system yeah. uh and and so it takes <laughs> it's fs not just f uh but anyway famously everything in unix is a file uh, at least in the original research unix such as v7 unix and bsd unix deviated from that for the network stuff but almost everything else files were files directories were files disks were files serial lines were files and so on this was a pretty revolutionary idea at the time. However, this was not implemented inside the kernel in any generic way. Instead, things knew what uh, that things were various types of file objects or inodes and handled them uh, specifically. As part of this, early Unix had no concept of there being multiple types of file systems. There was just the file system, one type, uh, whatever it was. And you know, reads and writes of regular files were fairly hard coded based on that. Uh, he has some references here. You know, you can see how this worked in V7 Unix with the RDWR or read write function. 
uh, in sysdo.c or later on the readi um, function in rdwri.c. This continued to be the case even up to 4.2 BSD with its rwip um, in sys underscore inode.c. Uh, this worked out okay even in 4.2 BSD because while 4.2 BSD changed the file system format, it still only had one type of file system. That was the BSD FFS slash UFS. So when Sun came up with NFS and found themselves with a problem, their kernel needed to support two different file systems, UFS uh, for the local disk and NFS for the network file system. See NFS, network file system. File system uh, yeah. is two <laughs> Right. So Sun invented the idea of the virtual file system switch, or VFS. And here we are. VFS added <laughs> a layer of indirection to the kernel's internal operations on mounted file systems. Each different type of file system had a table of a bunch of function pointers for various operations, and now when the kernel wanted to read data from a regular file, it didn't call one function to map that file offset to the block number, and then another one to read that block number from the disk. That's how v7 and 4.2 BSD did it. Instead, the kernel indirectly called a per file system read this data from this file function. On a local UFS file system, internally, this just did the same block mapping and then device reading as it did before. But on UFS, it ended up making the remote procedure call over the network. So they note uh, v8 Unix also had the idea of VFS or the file system switch. Uh, I think that Sun's NFS and V8 were basically contemporary, happened about the same time. So it's quite possible that the VFS idea was in the Unix era at the time, and it wasn't Sun that invented it necessarily, but it doesn't really matter. Either way, we got the virtual file system switch. One critical thing that the VFS did was it opened the door for virtual file systems as well. File systems that did not actually have a concrete implementation that stored things on disk even if it was on another machine by, a, by making RPC requests. Virtual file systems can make up their contents on the fly, both uh, the contents of files and the contents of directories. In modern Unix, virtual file systems are used to implement a number of important things, although uh, that just depends on which version of Unix. So, you know, we have tempfs where we're storing it in memory and it's not persistent, or we have devfs where um, all those device nodes, you know, the file that is your hard drive is made up on the fly so it can appear and disappear when you connect and disconnect hard drive and so on. Or, you know, uh, Linux's slash proc, you know, there's not actually files written down anywhere that do that. And when you read that file, it's just the kernel getting information out for you. Plan 9 from Bell Labs took the idea of everything being a virtual file system about as far as you can ask it to. Famously, the uh, Windows system was exposed and manipulated as a file system. Programs could do this themselves and expose their own operations. Uh, there's actually an, uh, a program called Acme, uh, the text editor that did this. Uh, today, the idea of Unix virtual file systems is everywhere. You know, pretty much every OS has slash proc, for example. However, it had to be invented and then it took a bit of time for it to become pervasive and for kernel developers to become comfortable with exploiting its capabilities. As a practical matter, waiting for the VFS turns out to be a blocking factor and some of the most interesting and obvious seeming Unix capabilities, but that's uh, an entry for another time. Okay, yeah, good to know this. Uh, and we wouldn't, we weren't, we wouldn't be able to copy files from one file system to another without the VFS. So it has to pass this layer. Uh, well, in this, like, I think like Unix definitely supported having two different UFS devices, like two hard drives. 
It just didn't support yeah, having UFS and some other file system. Yeah, or like from the network, like network file system to hard disk or vice versa. Mm. All kinds of stuff like that would have not been possible. This week's episode of BSD Now is sponsored by our friends at Tarsnap, the only secure online backup service you can trust. Even paranoids need backups. So Tarsnap works via the command line in the same way as the tar command, except for the tar file ends up getting created in the cloud. But importantly, all of your data is encrypted on your machine before it goes to the cloud. And your encryption key never leaves your machine. So it means no one at Tarsnap, no one at Amazon, and no one anywhere else can access your backups without the key. So as long as you keep the key safe, your data is safe. And Tarsnap also uses Colin's uh, differencing engine, uh, which is able to uh, deduplicate data and avoid having to send data that's already backed up into the cloud again. So it makes it really nice for backing up your laptop, even on the road, uh, because it can make those backups as small as possible. By doing deduplication and compression, and then the encryption, you make sure that you're sending only the stuff that actually changed and uh, that it's all safe before it goes to the cloud. So check them out, tarsnap.com slash bsdnow. All right, uh, feedback and questions time. We get questions from you and we like getting questions from you in the future. So if you have anything you want to mention here about an article you found, something you blocked about, or have a question about an early episode, uh, send this to feedback at bsdnow.tv and then we will cover it here in this uh, section of ours. The first one is Paul this week with a plug Short and sweet. Hi, Benedict, Alan, Tom, and JT. It reads, I have a quick plug for you. I've recorded a talk on upstreaming the FreeBSD port, which will be in the Valgrind dev room, not the BSD one. So he, uh, that's the FOSDEM dev rooms. They're uh, virtual this year again. Uh, and he provides a link to that. Thanks for this. And it will be on Sunday, the 6th of February at 14.20 Brussels time. Scheduled to last 55 minutes. Cheers, Paul. Great, and they're recorded, and so we can watch them afterwards. Also, just a big thanks for sending that in, but also even bigger yeah. thanks for getting Valgrind ported back to FreeBSD and updated after, I think it was the ino 64 changes in FreeBSD 12.0 that broke Valgrind and, and needed the, a bunch of work and just years of, of Valgrind changing. Uh, it's super great to have Valgrind back. And while we're on the subject of FOSDEM, we also have a BSD dev room there where you can get all the updates from people who uh, submitted something there. Uh, it's not FreeBSD only, it's BSD, all the BSDs. And so check out what people have been working on while they were uh, stuck at home and couldn't travel. Cool. Thank you for that plug. Perfectly fine to do this here. And next up is Rolniak with a Beehive question or Beehive questions, multiple ones. Excellent. Uh, that goes, hello everyone. Thanks for your show. I discovered the BSD-like world with you some years ago. I'm grateful for that. Oh, great. You were uh, introduced through us. Uh, I use FreeBSD as a workstation in daily basis. I take the sysadmin role in some small open source project. Okay. One of these projects runs Proxmox virtual environment, ProxVE, and I hoped it will work in a Beehive VM like this. So he has a little diagram that's a bit skewed here, but we get the If idea. you click uh, raw on GitHub, it shows the original. Ah, perfect. Amazing. 
Yeah, so we have the KVM virtual machine on top. Then well, yeah, so uh, it looks like on the bottom, yeah, he's yeah. got a, a FreeBSD workstation that's the Beehive host. And then he wants to yeah. have a Beehive VM that will run Proxmonic VE as a guest, and then the KVM virtual machine guest inside. I think the problem with this is that uh, Beehive does not support nested virtualization. It does not expose the hardware CPU features so that a guest can also do virtualization. Yeah, mostly because it's really complicated and doesn't provide that much value. You know, the, I guess part of the question is, what are you using Proxmox for here? And and could you just use Beehive directly? And you know, instead of running that KVM virtual guest machine, could you just run that image on Beehive itself? Could be an old VM, maybe that they want to reuse. Uh, but uh, well, you can convert it. But anyway, uh, so their question was, you know, that they get the message that no support for KVM virtualization detected. Check your BIOS and make sure you've enabled Intel VT or AMD V or SVM. Yeah, Beehive has its own BIOS that only exposes so many features and so well, in, few. in particular, there's a lot of code that would have to be added to Beehive in order to uh, support passing uh, pass through virtualization like that. Yeah, yeah. And so this is the limiting factor here. We, we don't get any further. Uh, yeah, so here are the questions. Does Beehive support nested virtualization? We just answered that. No, unfortunately not. And the next one is, if yes, how to configure FreeBSD Beehive in order to make KVM virtual machines work inside a Beehive VM? That's, yeah. You can't. Uh, support it. And we, uh, if not, can someone explain why? It's not uh, implemented Basically, in the virtual BIOS. It'd be a, well, it's not the virtual BIOS. It's that Beehive would have to implement all the, the security features and everything to pass that through. Uh, basically, it's a lot of really complicated work, and the value is not as high as many of the other things that could be added to Beehive instead. Um, I don't know. So FreeBSD also supports Zen as a hypervisor. And it might support nested virtualization. Could be. I haven't played with it. I haven't played with uh, that in a, while. in a while. But I do believe Zen on FreeBSD supports all the features of Zen, and so it might actually support nested virtualization. And you might be able to do it by using Zen instead of Beehive on your FreeBSD workstation. Yeah, the Zen folks have been around longer doing these things than Beehive. Well, they also and so have, there could be a chance. You know, commercial things and money behind <laughs> that, that too yeah so yeah try this uh with zen maybe you get uh, a bit further than with beehive but definitely a, a good idea to to use beehive in a uh, open source project like yours cool thank you for that question or these questions and next is russell with a oh with pf pointers either about pointers in pf or pointers in pf we'll see howdy guys he writes i'm not sure how uh, how we'll be on this episode yeah okay so you all want questions and i have some help i'd love to receive yes excellent i bsd all the things excellent trying to keep that yucky linux out of my life however i still use ubiquity for my network gear and my parents and other family members and run an instance of the controller on a digital ocean droplet my ideal setup, I think, is to put it in a jail on a droplet, then have a WireGuard server in another jail, and make it so to administer I have to connect to WireGuard, then can access that web interface. Could you all give me some pointers using PF to uh, put me on the right track? Currently, the forums seem to be down, uh, they're not anymore, and trying to piece together bits and pieces and pull it all together is a bit of a chore. Mm -hmm. Um. So uh, I have done WireGuard in a jail. You have to use a VNet jail, and there's some, um, what's it, devfs.rules stuff you have to do to allow 
to control what devices will be visible inside the jail, the VNet jail. Um, so that basically you have to make, I think it's dev tap star uh, accessible so that the uh, WireGuard instance inside the jail can create the tap inter the yeah the tap interfaces for the VPN. Um, outside of that, it mostly just works. Although it's probably easier if you put the WireGuard in the jail with the Ubiquity thing instead. Mm. Uh, it, much less complicated routing and so on than if you have the WireGuard in its own separate jail. Uh, but Anyway, if you do it uh, as VNet jails, uh, you would create a VNet jail for the Ubiquity stuff and put that all in there, and it'll have an ePair interface. And then you'd have a second jail for WireGuard and its ePair interface. Then you could create a bridge to connect those two together, and then just some simple PF rules to NAT traffic on its way out uh, from the WireGuard and the Ubiquity jails we get natted out the public IP you have from DigitalOcean on your real interface. Um, and then you would just have to port forward the right port for WireGuard from that public IP into the WireGuard jail. And then uh, once that's there, then you can just have an internal IP to act, control access to um, the Ubiquity's web interface so that you have to be in the, the subnet that's set up in your WireGuard uh, will be the one that will access the, uh, the Ubiquity jail. Mm -hmm. It's a little more complicated to set up than I could just quickly describe on the podcast. Yeah, we should have a uh, um, how-to for that somewhere. There's an article on uh, Clara's website about creating multiple network jails like that and connecting them all together. That's probably most of the ingredients you would need. But yeah, we should definitely at least publish our how to run a WireGuard server in a VNet jail. Yeah, we had a bunch of uh, WireGuard tutorials in the past, but not in this specific scenario. Right. Um, and especially doing it in jails and so on. The last one I did, it, well, I didn't do it in a jail, but I got a WireGuard jail from zero to working in about six minutes because I needed to, I needed to convince YouTube I was actually in Canada, even though I was in Canada, <laughs> so that I could watch the YouTube live stream of a hockey game. Because and why not? I, I was missing the game. The game was starting. Yeah, so it was like, I know this is really important for Canadians. And then connect my TV via that wire guard so that I could watch the live stream. It would be the same for Germans watching soccer. <laughs> well, just, because my home internet connection is special, uh, it geolocates as being in the US, which usually is an advantage. Uh, but in this case of stuff that was fenced to Canada, it was a disadvantage. Yeah. But a little VPNage and it was all good. Yeah. So this is. So yeah. Uh, I think basically what you want to do does. is um, create a bridge that connects the Ubiquity jail and the WireGuard jail and have that have uh, each of the two jails will have an IP on the subnet uh, that you have WireGuard giving out to the clients as well. And then the clients will just uh, be able to connect um, to the Ubiquity web interface. And then you just have to do regular NAT uh, to allow both of those jails to reach out to the internet. And then you have to port forward the WireGuard port in so that you can make the inbound WireGuard connection. Mm. Uh, but I don't have a ready-made recipe for that. But if you or someone makes that, uh, we should definitely 
highlight it on the show. Oh, yes, we will cover that and uh, we'll be happy to spread the word about that. If someone would have blocked about this, they will get a lot of traffic this way. Okay, uh, that's it for this week. We have nothing more, but in the next week's episode, there is fresh content for you. So check this out and enjoy the rest of your week until we hear or you hear us again. Yep, and remember, uh, if you like this bar, you can... If you like the show, you can support it on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash BSD now and subscribe. And if you give us $5 a month or more, you get a dedicated RSS feed of the episodes with the ads edited out. Yeah, for example, or some special thanks uh, that we recorded for the people who put in some money to support. Also, if you have a good idea for other perks we could give via Patreon that people would find interesting, uh, we're definitely open to ideas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're still new or experimenting with what people might be you know, interested in or just uh, see what, yeah, what cool ideas they may have that we didn't come up with. <laughs>